Hello everyone, welcome to the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien and this is episode 45, the third of part 7. The topic for today is the problem with Christopher Hitchens. Alright, so Christopher Hitchens. It must be said, of all the new atheists of the past, or maybe even today, Hitchens is my, let's say, not favorite, but the person that I respect the most, or respect given what has transpired in the past, well, few years, especially since 2016. But really, I mean, Christopher Hitchens is very likable. I'm sure many, many people would test, uh, would know, would believe, would accept. You know, Hitchens was a likable person. The way he spoke, the way he articulated himself, his uh, command of the English language. I mean, just him as a person, right? There was something about him that was very likable, even for people who, who disagreed with him. There was something about Christopher Hitchens, the way he spoke, the persona that he had, that make him likable. Like, so regardless of what one may have thought of him as a person, or what he did, what he... Uh, his political views, his commentary, you tend to sort of support him in, in a certain way, even if you don't. And this was especially the case when it came to a lot of the debates between him and a lot of Christian apologists. That was really my sort of proper introduction to Christopher Hitchens, although it was actually a book, if I'm not mistaken, actually with a YouTube video. But anyway, my introduction to Hitchens, which actually took place after his passing, right? That is to say, you know, somewhere in 2011, I think, that around the time. Of course, I've been reading up on some of these things leading up to it, but then you know, his introduction really helped sort of kickstart my journey, one could say, in this arena of debate on the question of faith, God, religion, etc., etc., and of course, by extension, sort of my formal introduction to the new atheist phenomenon. Okay, but speaking of Christopher Hitchens, I think it has to be said, his presence, right, I mean, the fact that he's no longer with us is a bit sad. I mean, it has to be said, it's certainly a loss, even for people who don't like him, even for people who disagreed with him, okay, even for people, I'm sure, who debated him. That point has to be made. With that said, Hitchens was a controversial figure for many reasons. Like he, I think, saw out on the left. He was a Marxist, I think. Um, yeah, he calls himself a Marxist. And I mean, a lot of these guys on the left are Marxists as well. And as I mentioned, first episode of this part, the New Atheist Critique stems fundamentally from a, a left-wing and one has to say the intellectual antecedents. If one follows the line of argument, it invariably ends up in some kind of Marxist hole. So that point has to be made, a, a critical observation. Now, with Hitchens, leaving aside his Marxism, you know, he had a lot of other things to say about a lot of other things. He was, what's the word, polemist. He was polemical. He didn't just criticize things, he went after things. You know, he sought to like, sort of break down and attempt to destroy the opponent, their views, and he sort of built up a reputation doing so. And, and credit to him, he did it very well. It was him as a person, his ability to articulate his views. Some people just come across as utterly obnoxious, as I would point out later in the course of this part. Some of the other persons in the list of new atheists, these people certainly do fall in that category of obnoxious. But Hitchens certainly stayed about them, right? That has to be said, you know, he was different. But Hitchens' critique of religion, right, which is going to be the focus of today's episode, is a point of concern, because his critique, whilst very appealing, okay, whilst very interesting to listen to, whilst it's very, how can I say, it's the sort of thing you like to watch. Even for someone who doesn't really agree with Hitchens, I mean, for example, a lot of his debates with Christian apologists, I tend to pick the side of the apologist for whatever reason. As much as I think Hitchens has a point, and he often does, most of the things or uh, concerns that he raises do have a lot of validity. But apologists, in my view, as I will argue, do have a solid base from which to work from. And uh, Hitchens himself, his line of attack, one could say, was all over the place. The sporadic, unstructured manner, the way he conducted himself, that is something that we need to look at when critiquing this person. Considering that, what is required is a more, how can I say, a structured critique of Hitchens. That is to say, his critique of religion 
as I would argue, it was kind of all over the place. And he did that purposefully. I think it seems for Hitchens, and I just want to preview this before we get into the meat of this debate, is that the thing with Hitchens is that, you know, he his aim was to destroy the enemy, was to sort of basically bury his opponent in a barrage of arguments, not giving them a chance to respond. And whilst that may have been effective from a debating perspective, certainly from the standpoint of the audience, the audience say, oh, wow, this guy, he knows how to talk, right? And he knows how to, you know, line up his arguments. And he did that very well. But when it comes to serious debate on questions like God, when it's debate on the questions like faith, on reason, and its relationship to human society, history, tradition, culture, etc., etc., these things do become problematic. And Hitchens, to his detriment, got it wrong. I think he became sort of raptured by the idea of the debate. The debate became an end in itself. It was always about winning the debate. Fairness to him, that was the whole point. But it seemed to me, and this is true for all of these new atheist people, is that they don't take the argument further, okay? They are driven by their own, one has to say at some level, they understand it or not, a certain ideological predisposition, okay? And that is something we will get into as we move forward in this part, the critique of new atheism. A couple of other things I have to say, because, I mean, this is unlike the other people going after, but some of the other guys like Daniel Dennett and Krauss probably have a, have a freer hand, let's say. But with Hitchens, it requires some degree of, uh, one could say, delicacy because he is respected. And of course, I mean, importantly, he is no longer with us. So, a couple of things. Okay, first of all, I think for the most part, he was serious. Despite some of the shortfalls, despite some of the here and there messy type of way of engaging these arguments, he was open-minded to some extent. Unlike some of the other new atheists, there's a lot that's going wrong with the new atheists as people. Okay, So it goes beyond the intellectual dimension. It comes down to the level of the person as it always does, right? But Hitchens did sense a degree of openness. So that was something else about him. One area, of course, is that his, his changing character, his changing political character, right? For example, in the US, he was mostly on the left, I think. When it comes to social commentary, he was, for I can understand, he was a critique of Bill Clinton. That was unsurprising, I think, from his perspective. But he was also a critique of Ronald Reagan, okay? So that's kind of interesting. You know, he was a supporter of George Bush, okay? You know, George Bush, right? Even though... Bush was on the right, that he was on the Republican side, a conservative apparently. He was at the same time attacking all these Christian apologists and religious people. And the Bush administration, the Bush party line was supposed to be in favor of those groups. So he was kind of a mixed bag. This is the sort of thing that makes a person interesting. You don't want one-dimensional people who are just there to attack and hold a certain ideological line and just, you know, fight till the cows come home. There has to be more to it. There has to be a greater degree of nuance, a greater degree of depth and breadth in terms of one's points of view okay and i think hitchens to some extent okay not a great extent i would say to his credit and to his detriment he did embody those qualities i mean his support for the iraq war was very polarizing his support for bush was very polarizing now, some of you may have encountered him on bill Maher, basically defending a bush and you know, he was that kind of person and also i do admire him as a writer okay, as a commentator on political issues and i don't want to get into the politics of the iraq war or of politics in general have to at some point. Hitchens was a brave soul. So some of the things that he says about religion, okay, now I will never be able to say. Whilst this podcast, The New Humanist, has been a critic of religion at one level, it's measured. I'm compelled in a way to moderate my opinions. And for example, I will never go after, I don't think I will be able to, other religions like Islam or Judaism or Hinduism, right? You know, so he was able to do those things. And of course, maybe that's him, maybe that's his position, you know, maybe that's his status, whatever. Now, I'm not commending those things, but it has to be said. You know, credit to the man, he was brave enough, okay? The other thing, of course, speaking of Christopher Hitchens, and this is something I have to say, is I do admire his writing. In fact, I have to say I learned quite a bit by reading his works. 
okay, there are way of writing and some of the secondary references. Now, for the listener, I'm saying this because I'm going to I'm going to tear into his views in a moment. But I think this foundation needs to be established so that you know where I'm coming from. So, a number of his books. I think I mentioned this before. I did mention that I read some of Hitchens's books. God is not great, which is probably the most famous book. I read Missionary Position, his critique of Mother Teresa, which has a lot of truth to it as well. And also, I read Arguably, which is basically a collection of his writings. Really, all of his writings for publications, for news magazines, right, like Vanity Fair and so on, collected and then structured according to various headings. Very interesting. Many interesting encounters. Many things, like his time in the Middle East in various you know, Middle Eastern countries, in Iraq, I think Afghanistan, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Certainly North Korea. I think he mentioned things. Number of experiences and also his views on on social issues like women. I think the famous example of women can't be funny. Some of you may have heard of it. And for the record, listener, in case the listener is wondering why my view of humanism is very strictly religious and in the spiritual, so to speak, these things will come forth in due time. I'll probably will expand this debate further. That's for a later time, hopefully sooner. With Hitchens, my point is, listener, I have followed him somewhat closely. Of course, you know, again, the guy's not around anymore, so that's obviously sad. But other than that, you know, Hitchens, he did a lot of good work, and that is something that we have to commend, okay? But the problem with Christopher Hitchens, there are a number of them, really, and it's impossible to cover it in a 30-minute-odd episode, but I'll break it down into three areas. Now, there are a number of issues with, I think, already touched on the main one, which is the fact that his attack on religion is very sporadic, right? It's all over the place. It's just there's no coherence. He just jumps from one thing to the other. And there are many things which I can critique about Christopher Hitchens, which are actually aspects of the critique of the New Atheists, which are more strongly represented on the other side. Let's say, so for example, critique of religion vis-a-vis the evolutionary trajectory. Use evolution to attack religion. That, I think, is better engaged in the works of Richard Dawkins, for example. So I will reserve that for him. And other examples like, you know, cosmological critiques, which I think is better engaged in people like Lawrence Krauss. Hitchens is borrowing these ideas from other people to reinforce, to buttress his critiques. Fantasy, he can't do that, but the point is, it serves no purpose in bringing them up here, given the time that we have, okay? Right, so what am I going to say? What is my critique of Hitchens comes to the problematic character of his critique of religion, okay? So here I have three points, starting with, one, Hitchens' critique of the Church of England and of the royal family is simplistic and is borderline hypocritical. Two, Hitchens' belief in the sufficiency of reason to guarantee good moral human conduct is weak. Three, Hitchens' critique of the religious impulse is commendable for its self-defeating character. Okay, so what do we have here? First of all, point number one, the critique of the Church of England. Now, this is interesting because this is something I've heard a number of times. You look at a number of his debates, okay, from the time that he was doing, I think it was between 2007, 2009, that was the time, maybe 2006, I guess, where he was really going around doing this. Of course, in fairness, he was trying to promote his book. And he did that well in a way that was, was a formula. There was a certain pattern to his religious critique. There were a number of points that kept coming up again and again. Like, for example, if you go on YouTube, one of his most popular videos is his speech at Google. I think Google Talks. And he was quite good. It was a long speech. And that was one of the more popular in terms of total number of views on YouTube. It's almost 4 million, I think. And another very popular one, which I will reference today, is his, it's his debate on IQ squared, Okay, where he basically goes after the Catholic Church, I think. Yeah. So the point is, listener, when you follow these debates, whether it's a group debate or whether it's a one-on-one debate, involving people like William Lane Craig, Dinesh D'Souza, and William Dembski, right? That's another interesting one as well, which I would encourage the listener to. I'm sure some of you guys have been through this, and it's very interesting to watch and listen. 
The problem with Hitchens' critique of religion, right, is that he tends to bring this up again and again, this particular point, which is the Church of England. By extension, he criticizes the royal family, criticizes the royal family of Great Britain. And by extension, he criticizes its religious character. And by extension, he criticizes the country as a whole. Now, the problem here is this. First off, uh, he is a guy on the left, okay? You'd expect this sort of thing from people like him, with all due respect. I mean, if you go to England, I doubt there are many uh, people who vote for the Labour Party, right? Who would think highly of the British monarchy, right? Not many, I would say. It's like the Guardian newspaper. In the Guardian, there's whenever the topic of the royal family comes up, you would have one or two people crying about, oh, you know, the monarchy is outdated. It needs to be removed. We need to get rid of it, etc. You know, I don't want to, you know, sort of weigh too heavily on this because it doesn't really bother me as much. But this, the idea of criticizing the monarchy is something a lot of people do, and it's a very easy thing to do. And I guess paradoxically, it's kind of a testament to the greatness of Western culture because you are able to do such a thing, right? You can actually criticize the ruling kings and queens and still have a job or still have your head. Of course, the British monarchy is a constitutional monarchy, so it doesn't have absolute power. But these points have to be considered. These things, I mean, it's easy to be to become too entitled, you know, in terms of one's ability to do things. But these are freedoms that many do not have. You know, you can pull that kind of stunt in Saudi Arabia, in all fairness. But the point, listener, is that Hitchens is critical of the royal family. We need to look at it for what it really is. It's coming from a person on the left. So he's doing that for ideological reasons. He wants Britain to be a secular state, like the United States. He views America as his great grand project. In fairness to him, that's fine. But the problem here is this. Okay, Britain's political character is an anomaly in some respects, in many ways because of its religious dimension. Okay, And this is something that we need to look at in a more comprehensive light. First off, the idea that the monarchy in Britain, this is a point Hitchens always raises. The monarchy was, what is it, built on the family values of King Henry VIII. Now, you can say what you like. King Henry VIII was a great king. Now, this is not an easy thing to say from a Catholic perspective, because that's my heritage. But from a Protestant, certainly from an Anglican perspective, King Henry VIII was a great king. Fine, he had many wives. He had a number of them executed. He was a beast, and he was ruthless in his own right. But, you know, King Henry VIII was powerful. Him establishing the Church of England was to, to the benefit of England. Yeah, of course, the English culture and the populace themselves were already on the point of breaking. So this is something we need to look at at a deeper level. I think a lot of countries which have a sort of Germanic heritage tend to be very independent in their spiritual character, and they tend to be quite resistant to any kind of centralization of authority, especially in a spiritual sense. So there is a deeper issue there because a lot of these Germanic countries tend to be Protestant, like in Germany and certainly Northern European countries as well. That's a different subject, but my point here is King Henry VIII breaking with the Catholic Church, right, was a great thing. It showed bravery, it showed authority, it showed leadership, and then to establish a church and to make himself the head, okay, and that itself became a sort of a heritage for Britain, right? Britain has its own church. It now controls its own political and spiritual destiny. So you can say what you like about Henry VIII and his marital escapades. He was a leader in that sense. Now, of course, the political, the religious break was also political in the sense that it helped establish England or Great Britain, which is fundamentally an English-dominated project because England was the strongest, very much strong in its own ability. It did not need the validation of some papist prince that's how the English referred to the Pope, if I'm not mistaken. And England grew stronger, right? I mean, Henry VIII onward, of course, even before that. I mean, all the kings and queens of England. It has to be said, a lot of them actually continental. I'm not going to go into the whole Germanic story here. The point is that England is a great country. And it's great because or despite its monarchical character. The monarchical system has served Britain well. And of course, there are many factors as to why this is the case. I can't get into that here. I mean, if you look at the political development of societies, right? Why countries like England did it well, did it better than absolute monarchies like in Spain or in France. France especially had a really bad situation. That's why it led to the French Revolution, right? Which is so bad. 
so violent, uh, unlike the American Revolution. And in many ways, the fact that Britain was able to evade getting into a situation where it needed a kind of a political revolt to overthrow the system and to establish a secular republic, the fact that it was able to avoid it and maintain control of its monarchy and maintain monarchical system with the aid of the church is a testament to its success. It actually argues in favor of Britain as a great country. The fact that it need not go through a revolutionary process. Now, I'm not saying that you know countries need to have a monarchical system like Britain or anything else. And in fact, that's an even deeper question. Can a country have a monarchical system? In what country can actually operate well and efficiently and successfully when it has a, a ruling a royal family? That's a different question. But again, Britain, in spite of it or because of it, I don't know, has done very well. And of course, this is self-evident. I mean, England is a great country. As we all know, it's one of the best countries in the world. Great people have come from England. Great teachers, great thinkers, great writers, great poets, you know, great many, many people. You know, like the Olympics, for example. You know, England is a small country, relatively speaking, but does very well. And many examples, I need not go through the list here. And of course, Christopher Hitchens himself, very famous from England, you know, studied at Oxford, you know, speaks with a posh British accent. It's funny, actually, with Hitchens. I mean, he became an American citizen, but he never spoke American. He remained very much English in terms of his style. And I think even the way he carried himself, you know, he had a sort of a British gentleman-like, I don't know, maybe that tells you something. My point is, if you're going to go and criticize the royal family in Britain or England, you're criticizing the whole heritage. You're criticizing the country's history. You're criticizing the country. Criticizing the country, the heritage, everything. Because they embody that. They're like the glue which holds everything together. I mean, you might ask yourself the question, why do British people sing, God save the Queen? Why do they do that? What does that even mean? I don't have an answer to that question. But my understanding is that there is something that keeps them together. It's something that connects them, okay? It is more than just having some person sitting on the throne, you know, dressed in regal clothing and you know, looking special. No, there's more to it than that. The monarchy embodies something. It embodies something special. It embodies the heritage of a nation, the culture, the history, okay? The idea of a king. And in fact, I can argue this from a spiritual perspective as to why we need kings and queens. At least why there are kings and queens. What is the spiritual justification for it? And that's a deep issue which I cannot get into here. And that's a fact that even extends it to a fantasy. For example, the idea of a king. We all need a king. I think virtually any fantasy story has this narrative of a king. We need a leader. There's certainly Lord of the Rings, maybe even a Game of Thrones. I'm not sure about Harry Potter, but, but my point is, listener, Mr. Hitchens's Republican sentiments, which is very strong in his writing. He cites Thomas Paine, the American founders. This anti-monarchist tendency is very strong. This comes from a Republican view at one level, but I think primarily driven by an atheistic to create a secular system, as one envisaged by Maximilien Robespierre, these uh, French revolutionaries. But the American Revolution didn't take that route. This is something we need to consider. We don't have time for nuance at the moment, but the point is, listener, the British monarchy is more than just the royal family. It's more than just the family values of Henry VIII. It's more than just you know, them just sitting there doing nothing as it seems. No, there's a lot to it. There's a lot going on. And that, in many ways, is a testament to the character of the British people. And Hitchens himself is a part of that heritage. He's from England. You know, he was raised in an English family. His father, is, well, I think it was the Royal Navy, I think. He was definitely in the military service. His mother was, I don't know, from somewhere else. That's a topic for another time, maybe. And, of course, he became an American. He didn't like the monarchy. He had you know, terrible things to say. In fact, he had terrible things to say about Princess Diana during a, a funeral. I remember watching this video of him and some guy called Putin and someone else, right? This must be from, was it the Washington Examiner? Anyway, this is during the funeral of Princess Diana in 1998, is it? Oh, seven, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, and this is whilst the funeral was going on, and he was saying terrible things about her and why they're having this whole thing. Anyway, my point is, listener, Mr. Hitch's critique of the royal family is kind of hypocritical and kind of farcical. He himself is a person who comes from a country which has given him everything, the values, the tradition, the education, the system. 
And if you've been to England, if you lived in England, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? There's this culture there, how they interact, how people are. And you don't see that in other parts of the world, as far as I can understand. And he's a beneficiary of it, okay? And he now comes and turns around and starts to ambassador the family, bringing up Henry VIII. He has a few things to say about Prince Charles as well, which I'll not get into here. But this kind of argumentation is not serious. If you're going to criticize the royal family, you need to criticize its whole history, going all the way back to King Alfred the Great, you know, the great king who in many ways is the father of the English language. The modern English language came as a result of him. That's another story. And also the great monarchs from Queen Victoria to King George V. We can go through the list. Okay? We need not break that down here. Point is, listener, this idea of criticizing the royal family is kind of lame, kind of childish. It really works against him. Point number two, Christians' belief in the sufficiency of reason to guarantee good human conduct. Now, this is especially problematic. The idea that reason, okay, is somehow sufficient, that you can sort of rely on your rational faculties and expect that to guide you, expect that to make you act in a good way, make you behave in an acceptable way. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if that is sufficient. Okay, and I'll give you one concrete example. If you lived in a country which has a Christian heritage, which I have, and if you have lived in a country which has a non-Christian heritage, which I have, you will immediately notice the difference. Countries which are formed on a Christian foundation, they have something about them. And these days, as it happens, they tend to be European countries, they tend to be Western countries, they tend to be advanced economies. Right? Even Korea, for example, I would say is Western. Korea has a strong Christian population, it's quite a Westernized as well. Japan is a bit of an exception, but you know, it has a different... It's been Americanized and Westernized due to, to American occupation and, and capitalism and integration with the world economy. But really, the point is that reason is not sufficient. And how do we know that? Look at the world today. Look at the world where countries which don't have a Christian heritage, which have a different value system. Okay, they tend to be non-Western. They tend to be non-European. They tend to be non-developed oftentimes. And they tend to be kind of messy. You know, it's rare to find a society in the world which has a Christian heritage, right? right? I'm not talking about these African countries, for example. African countries were like, until really the last century, they were, Africa was colonized quite late. Even though today, Africa is probably the strongest Christian continent in the world. I think Latin America is getting weaker and the demographics in Africa seem to favor its growth and Christianity is growing pretty fast in Africa. But Africa is not Christian, culturally speaking. The introduction of Christianity was quite new. It was quite late. European colonialism of Africa took place quite late. The continent of Africa, that's basically the southern sub-Saharan region. North Africa is predominantly Islamic, as we know. But Africa, even though it is Christian in terms of sheer numbers, like under Nigeria, you know, huge Christian populations, they're not Christian culturally, right? That is, the institutions have not been shaped by Christian values. Their cultural frameworks have not been governed or directed by a Christian ethic, okay? And that shows, and this goes beyond the moral dimension. It even works in things like economics, political systems, you know, how they organize themselves. And there are many factors that work into this, but the problem with Africa is that it can't be used as an example. So when I speak of a Christian country, or countries of a Christian heritage, we're talking about the West, we're talking about Europe, we're talking about Western developed advanced economies. Now again, this is not sort of an end-all argument, because in the West we have other kinds of problems, other kinds of moral issues like you know abortion and euthanasia and so on. This is a constrained argument, listener, but my point is the idea that you can somehow build a great society without a transcendental framework, that is the point which Mr. Agents is making, that you can just somehow build a great society without recourse to the divine, without recourse to the transcendental, without the need for religion, which is, religion basically is a system of rules and laws and regulations and practice that helps us get in touch with the transcendental. Religion is not an end in itself. This is something I will get into later in a future part as to what is religion actually. But we need the religious dimension to help us connect with the transcendental, which in turn helps us lead a better life when it comes to morals, when it comes to ethics, when it comes to values and virtues. Reason alone is not sufficient. Because at the end of the day, folks, you can reason yourself into doing anything. 
And this is a deeper problem, actually, because owing to the fact that there's a deeper impulse within us, okay, there's an impulse for survival, there's an impulse for control, there's a, the desire for power. The survival is imperative. You probably have a Darwinian origin, which I don't deny. These things can undermine and they can even actually demolish the urge for reason. Reason itself can be corrupted. Reason itself can be twisted. You can reason yourself into committing all kinds of horrible things. Point is, listener, reason is not sufficient because reason is basically what is driving you to make those conclusions. What is driving you to be reasonable? The underlying drivers, right? the urge to survive, the urge to reproduce, the urge to have security, the urge to derive pleasure, the urge for power, okay, or the will to power, to quote Nietzsche. These forces can impel you to think otherwise. Your rationing faculties can be harnessed and directed in a different direction. So you might think, oh, I'm acting very reasonably, but yeah, but you're acting reasonably for the wrong reasons. I mean, the most obvious example is the Third Reich. I mean, it's unbelievable what happened in Germany, right? this great civilization. Of course, the Second German Reich was also not perfect, but you know, how do you expect Germany, such an advanced civilization, to sort of embrace the idea of the beliefs that they did, that made them do what they did? It's very easy, listener, for us to think that, you know, I'll be very reasonable. I'll be good. As long as I think clearly, as long as I'm making rational choices, you know, comparing and contrasting things, looking at data, looking at inputs, outputs, looking at outcomes, thinking long-term, being objective, not being driven by emotions, not being selfish, and I'll just be very reasonable. It doesn't work that way. It hardly ever does. Every day is a constant battle against these impulses to hurt other people. It happens. Vengeance, the will to you know extract. So saying you derive pleasure from someone else's misery. These things are very powerful. You cannot reason yourself out of it. Reason is not sufficient. You need something more. And here we have the religious impulse, the religious dimension. The idea of spirit and God and how that can help us. Mr. Hitchens is very irresponsible. Hitchens' view is that religion is some kind of a restraining force. It makes us irrational. It makes us think dogmatically. It makes us think reductively. It makes us look at life in a very parochial way. That might be true, and I'm not entirely in disagreement with that point of view. But it is not religion in our dogmatic sense purely, but it is religion in as a guiding force, as an educative force, something which can guide us to make better decisions. That is what is needed. And Hitchens does not consider it. And this is something I'll engage in the final point. What the listener needs to understand is that when you get rid of religion, what do you fall back on? What is the moral framework? Okay, what is the guiding force? Okay, what is it? Okay, is it going to be what? Your ethical teachings from school? Your, you know, what your lawyer says? Or what the Guardian newspaper says? Or what the latest feminist magazine has to say? From what I can understand, if, especially if you look at what's happening now in the Western world, right, with all these factions emerging on the left... Okay, which are the religious group? The socialists, the social democrats, the feminists, the gender feminists, the LGBT people, all of these groups. I mean, what do you see there? Do you see unity? Do you see commonality? No. You're seeing people breaking up and, and forming their own groups, and they're having their own value systems, right? They're fighting amongst themselves. And the idea that people can act reasonably or rationally, you know, you decide. The listener, who I'm presuming is on the left predominantly, you guys have to figure this out. I mean, what is going on here? Can you expect people to act reasonably and rationally, right? simply because that's all that is needed. Clearly, there are other factors and forces involved. I mean, the will to do what is wrong is very strong. Life is about choosing between the right choice and the easy choice. The right choice is invariably the hard choice. Then you cannot reason yourself often into making the right choice. It is not sufficient. You need a higher problem. You need a compelling force. You need an impelling force. I mean, just use one example from religious dimension. If you're a Christian, you're reminded of your faults. In the Catholic world, we have the confession, right? So what is it? I confess, right? There's this prayer called I confess. You say that every Sunday. I'm not sure if you find it in the Anglican world. But anyway, every Sunday you go to church and they say, I confess 
to Almighty God. If you're a Christian or Catholic, you probably know what I'm talking about. Every Sunday we say it, but why do we say it? Why do you have to go every Sunday and say, I confess? Because that is who we are. Okay, we can never be rid of it. No amount of reasoning, no amount of thinking rationally and reading good books and disciplining yourself and self-help, whatnot, is going to be sufficient. There has to be something more. Hitchens is either oblivious or he's being rather crude in his denial of this. And it works to his detriment. He's being rather crude and, frankly, rather narrow-minded in rejecting this. And it works to his detriment. Okay, final point. Hitchens' critique of the religious impulse, which I think is commendable, but it is self-defeating. So this is very important. So Hitchens, in fairness to him, has criticized not just religion per se, but it is a religious impulse. And he's sort of done this as a way to counter the uh, counterattack put forward by Christian apologists that, you know, there are other kinds of totalitarianism. So, and this is an area which Hitchens really has spoken about quite a bit, which is that religion is not the only doorway to authoritarianism and tyranny. Atheistic ideologies like communism and in some ways Nazism can also push us in that direction. Now, in fairness to Hitchens, I don't agree entirely that Nazism was entirely atheistic because there were certain spiritual, one could say for lack of a better word, aspects to the system. Okay? There are elements of, you know, I'm not going to get into that here, probably not the right place. But anyway, they were not purely atheistic, but they were clearly not Christian. Okay. Now, the tendency to, again, I'm going to restrain myself from going down that path, but the idea that without God or religion, right, that people can somehow create this utopian world is false. But, and Hitchens is right in saying, but that does not mean the impulse, and he calls it the religious impulse, will not manifest itself in different ways. Which means the secular totalitarian systems or non-Christian totalitarian systems like Nazism and communism can emerge. And what underlies them is the religious impulse. And that is where Hitchens hits a very critical point, is that these things are kind of innate. And his battle against the wickedness of totalitarianism, or dogmatism as he would call it, converges on this particular problem. So that when we remove religion from the equation, people can create their own systems of tyranny, their own totalitarianisms, which are independent of an established religious framework like Christianity or Islam right, or Hinduism. And Hitchens argues that this is what he's fighting against. But for him, as it happens now, the main institutional religions in the world are the Islamic, the Christian, and maybe the Jewish as well. There is a problem here. Hitchens gets a couple of things wrong when attacking totalitarianism. In the West, he doesn't recognize that Western countries are not totalitarian, especially the ones which are Christian. America is not a totalitarian country, and it's still a majority Christian. Same thing in the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is not a totalitarian state, and it's still, well, legally a Christian country. The queen is the head of the church and the head of the state. He's missing a point there. And if you look at the world today, a lot of the totalitarian systems are secular. Communist China, North Korea, and I'm not sure about Cuba. And North Korea is actually a country that features a lot in Hitchens' writings and discussions. And he makes a very interesting point. He says, look, North Korea, which is secular, there's no religion there, right? There's no official church, but there's an official state religion. And that state religion is the Kim Jong-un on whatever their names are, family. They are the religion. They are the sort of the demigods of that system. And he says, look, that is the problem. That is the weakness. See, but this is the problem which Hitchens is not recognizing. <laughs> Those kinds of systems, in this case, the deification of, of human beings, ordinary mortals, making them godlike, has emerged in the gap, in the vacuum of religion. In the absence of Christianity, for example, or of a belief in the transcendental power that is facilitated through an organized religious system like Christianity, okay, whatever the denomination, that is what gives rise to this space in which some secular demagoguery can emerge. And that is what has happened. That's exactly what has happened in the case of North Korea, right? There is no official church in Korea, so the state is the locus of belief. There is no god in Korea, so their totalitarian dictators are their gods. 
you can see how this works out. So Hitchens is really, he's basically arguing against himself. The nature of dictatorships is that there is no authority to balance them out. Now, I must commend Hitchens to saying that the religious impulse is a problem. Again, that doesn't answer the question. If he's trying to combat the religious impulse, he has to ask the question, why is the religious impulse there in the first place? Go back and listen to the debate he does with IQ squared. There are two. One is against the Catholic Church. One is basically in defense of the... Anyway, where he makes a very important point, the religious impulse, okay, which can manifest itself either in a religious system like the Catholic faith or in a secular system like communism or Maoism, etc. But this is the thing. Catholicism today is not a totalitarian system. It doesn't function that way. Nor is Judaism. And as far as Islam is concerned, that's a much more complicated issue. But certainly when it comes to Christianity, and I can only speak from that perspective, the totalitarian impulse is actually weaker. And in fact, I can actually cite the theological dimension of this problem. This is the conclusion to this particular point. Is that Theologically speaking, the church or Christian churches are opposed to any kind of totalitarianism, whether it's secular or religious. Okay, then the Catechism of the Catholic Church does reject communism and socialism as totalitarian and dictatorial. So, what I'm getting at is that Hegel sort of argued himself into a corner. If the problem lies with the religious impulse, the answer is not the destruction of the religious impulse, but rather its redirection. Okay, rather it's channeling into something constructive, or more pertinently, the need to balance out that impulse by constructive outlets. So, if you try to totally seal or cap the religious impulse, it's going to manifest itself in other ways. Freud made this observation that there's something innate within us, okay, that, that impels us towards the religious. And in fact, I can argue that from a spiritual perspective, that I think St. Augustine says, in Augustine's Confessions, you have that, yeah, my heart will not rest until rest in because the true joy comes from man's connection with God. I'm not quoting that exactly, but the listener will get my point, is that we are all driven for God because God created us. So that makes more sense. Now, the problem is this, if that impulse the thirst for the transcendental is not channeled correctly, right? It is not directed within the framework of belief that, say, for example, the Christian faith provides, then it can go wrong, and then it can get corrupted, then it can go down in a perverted direction. And that's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. I mean, people don't realize this, but the Third Reich had a concerted effort to sort of reshape the spiritual character of Germany. They were bringing in the bishops and the leaders and trying to corrupt them. There was an urge to establish a German church. That was different, that had independent origins, that, that had, they were trying to re-establish the church along a Germanic bloodlines, as opposed to its Christian heritage. Just to conclude this section, the problem is not religion per se, it is the need to direct our spiritual impulse in the right direction. And if we don't do it, if we don't find the right outlet, then there is always a danger that they will be corrupted, they will become taken up by false ideologies, or in the case of countries like Korea and China, I guess, They'll manifest themselves in an inordinate way, in a way that is dictatorial, in a way that's political and also spiritual. Okay? I mean, the communist system, in a way, despite its rejection of God, was in its own way spiritual. It believed in the perfectibility of man into this ideal worker. Or in the case of the Nazis, the notion of pure Aryan state. So they come to carry these kinds of spiritual ideals. Even today, with humanism, this is something I might get into later, the transhumanist thing, there are certain utopian conceptions there. So Hitchens is a very interesting guy. When it comes to the religious question, okay, we need to understand it is not just religion, it's not just dogma, it is not just laws, it's not just regulations. It is reason, it is history, it is tradition, it is the need to consider all possibilities. So it's more than just knowledge. There's the importance of reason, so faith and reason. And this critically brings us to the importance of theology and the theological enterprise, which, which as far as I can understand, Hitchens completely rejects. He, in fact, all of these new atheists completely ignore the importance of theology, which is the critical a factor which is really the glue, right? Really the the mesh that brings these things together and helps channel these, well, in this case, the intellectual endeavor in the right direction. So here I would quote a verse by Josef Ratzinger. 
then Pope Benedict XVI in a speech given at Regensburg in Germany in 2005, where he engages this particular point. This is a short quotation, but I think it helps conclude this episode. Quote, the courage to engage the whole breadth of reason and not the denial of its grandeur. This is the program with which a theology grounded in biblical faith enters into the debates of our time. Right, so to close, what we're getting at is the need for a theological enterprise. And this is something the new atheists need to consider. And frankly, all the people who attack religion, it's not just the Bible, it's not just the history, it's not just the representatives, it's not just the monarchs, it's not just King Andrew the or the Catholic leaders and their bad leadership. No, there is more to it. It is the debate, it is the discourse, it is the engagement, it is the encounter between these various facets of life and the need to pursue the question of human betterment. But this time, in a religious sense, one that is connected with the divine, one that is not solely focused on the self, solely focused on our own capacities for betterment and improvement. That is where the problems emerge. And this is, of course, a topic for another time. But folks, that is my critique of Christopher Hitchens. Hopefully, we got somewhere with this. It's a long episode, but I think it had to be done. All right, folks, this is the New Humanist Podcast. This is episode 45, the third of part seven. And see you guys next time. 